Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we talk to the change agents trying to make Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world a more vibrant and inclusive place. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And I'm your vice admiral philanthropod, Chris Miller. And today, our guest is Jeff Martin, who during the day is the communications manager at Philbrook. But you, our listeners, will know him more as 2020's Tilson of the Year and co-founder of Magic City Books. We talked to Jeff about our shared love of over-the-top events, what history tells us about our response to this pandemic, and two of his favorite stories about Philbrook and Magic City. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Tulsa People's Man of the Year for 2020 on the podcast today, Jeff Martin. Hi, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me. So the first question we've been asking people since around April is, how you doing? I think all things considered, I'm doing okay. I'm pretty adaptable and I get used to situations pretty quickly. April is the cruelest month, as T.S. Eliot famously wrote. So you work at two places. Both of them have suffered from the pandemic in very similar ways, which is foot traffic. People weren't going to Philbrook because Philbrook was obviously closed for a while and people were going to bookstores because they were afraid of catching the coronavirus. So, and I think both Philbrook and Magic City Books came up with very similar solutions, which was the signing up ahead of time for private viewing. Do you remember how that process came to be? It actually was in some ways born a couple of years ago because about three years ago at the museum, where I've worked for 11 odd years, we started a program called Me Time Mondays. Me Time Mondays is exactly what it sounds like. Excuse me. <clears throat> Most museums are closed on Mondays. And that's an industry-wide norm. And But we were always working on Mondays because we work a Monday through Friday schedule. So we had this amazing home and the garden that was basically empty up for a whole day of the week. And so I thought, as a social media kind of tool a few years ago, what if we offered people the chance to have the space to themselves? And so we started doing that, offering it like a contest. I remember the first person we ever had was a woman named Valerie who was wrote me this amazing letter. And she said she was an adopter of eight kids. And she had not had a real day to herself probably in three or four years. And so she came and was our first one. And she wrote me this amazing testimonial about what the day meant to her and what it was like to spend time in her own headspace. So we had been doing that for a while. So we already had a model in place and we had never charged for that. That was just something we offered to people, but we already had mechanics and logistics in place to do that. So we started charging people for that to rent basically the museum and gardens. So that was on that side. On the bookstore side, we closed the bookstore around St. Patrick's Day, and within a week or two, we had put together a five-point plan to get through whatever was coming. We didn't know if that was weeks or months or however long it was going to be. And one of those components of those that five-point plan was what we called solo shopping hours, and that was where you could basically go on Sign Up Genius and reserve the whole store to yourself. And in some ways, that's been the most lucrative thing that we've done during the time period, I almost feel guilty about saying it, but you know we're making more money than we were last year at this time, which is crazy. Uh, I think most businesses would be happy to be 20 or 30 or 40% down. But because we put in place some creative solutions and 
also because people are supporting us. It wouldn't work if we just had the things and people weren't out there doing them. We've been able to not just survive, but in some ways thrive. People ask me all the time, oh, how's it going? They walk up to me and they're very nervous about it. I don't want to say it's going great, but it's going okay. Yeah, you don't want to be like, the pandemic is the worst thing that's ever happened to us. (laughs) On average, Tuesday is actually better for us now. It's weird. But no, it's a strange thing, but it's a testament to our staff. And also being super proactive. I would say within five to 10 days of closing, we had a pretty solid grasp on what we were going to do. And um, if the pandemic wasn't enough, there was also a, a cultural explosion related to racial injustice and it becoming more and more prominent. And I know that both Philbrook and Magic City have tried to take uh, a role in that. Can you talk a little bit about the thought process behind that? I know it's different thoughts with both institutions. Yeah, I think having a foot in both those worlds. Philbrook, I'm very much part of a team and have been for a long time. At the other place, I'm the top dog and make most of the decisions. But it's nice to have both experiences because they do complement one another in a different way. We pretty much realized early on, I would say on the Magic City book side, we've always had a really robust and diverse programming schedule. And I think having that in place when all this happened put us at an advantage to where it didn't seem like we were just adding things all of a sudden. We'd already been doing that. Now, the one place that we have work to do is in diversification of our staff and our board. In our programming and all those things, I feel really good about the work that we've done. But the work that we have to do in that space is really on a people level. And so we're working on that now. On the museum side, very similar. The museum, of course, has a much longer history and goes back you know, nearly a century at this point. And so there's a lot of built-in structural issues there. People have perceptions and misconceptions, and some things are based on fact, and some things are hearsay and all those different things. But we know we have a lot of work to do, and we've been pretty intense about wanting to get on this quickly and make those important changes and have tough discussions with our staff and ourselves. And it's not been easy. There have been Zooms with tears and moments that were really emotional for our staff. And, and uh, it was definitely, it's not been an easy time, but it's been important. And I think no one would say it wasn't needed. Um, and we're really just starting. And I think in both spaces, our best role is, this is a term you hear used a lot and maybe overused is the kind of term of amplification. It's like using our platforms to help others be heard and seen and And uh, not speaking for others, letting others speak for themselves, and whether that's artists or other organizations in town. So we're still getting started in a lot of ways, but I'm I'm pleased with the work that we're doing and even where we are now. I think we're going to learn a lot as we go. Specifically with Philbrook, what does that look like? Does it look like having more diverse exhibits? Does it, what, what specifically does it look like with Philbrook? It's, it's rethinking about the entire way the museum is hung in terms of the installation. It's, it's about the exhibitions that we take. It's about the people we hire. And these are being just, every one of these components have discussions ongoing about them. It's about how we talk on social media. How, what are we featuring? How equitable is, are the voices that are being featured there? It's really from a top to bottom institutional thing. It's it's our board. We have a huge board at the museum. How how much can we diversify that to where it actually 
reflects the makeup of the community. And there are certain things that we're never going to be able to get over. We're never going to not be in a giant mansion. And we're never going to be able to not have a perception of wealth and privilege from when you pull up to the front door. Our work is how can we balance that out with everything else? Because that's a great benefit. We don't want to ever feel guilty for the fact that we have this amazing space. Um, But if you walk in and you don't feel welcome there and you don't feel like it's a space for you or you don't have any relationship to it, and that really is our fault at that point, and we need to do some work. So finding those kind of inherent challenges that are just baked into the cake and then figuring out how to deal with them and flip them, perception is really the key. Chris and I have been using this podcast as an amplification platform for people that we know and respect in the community who are doing work that we, that we want to spread the word about, and we want their messages heard, and we ourselves want to learn about what they're doing, why they're doing it this way, and what we've been doing wrong. But my email account has been, and I would not say inundated, but constantly reminded of the virtual Magic City book events that you've been doing over the past couple months. I've seen you do live book events. I was at the Rachel Maddow one, which was huge and engaging, even though we were in a huge basketball arena. And how have you been finding these Zoom author events and what do you know now about doing online events that you wish you would have known when you started? Um, yeah, we've done, you know, that was part of that kind of five point plan. So I'll just run through that just so you guys know what it was. One was putting in those solo shopping hours. That was one component. One was starting a monthly subscription plan called Magic City Mailbox, which is basically a new book of a different genre. You pick the genre you like, we'll mail it to you every month. The third one was these called literary care packages where we would you would fill out a form and basically talk about what you're interested in. Our booksellers would curate a package of books and mail it out to you. And we've mailed out hundreds and hundreds of those to, I think, 47, 48 states around the country. So those are those things. The author events were the other one. Let me think if I'm running through it now. Solo, Magison, I'm forgetting one. But one of those components was were the virtual author events. Now, having done so many, we were averaging 100 25 in-person author events a year ballpark and I've been doing this for a decade plus so we had a lot of great relationships so I was able to right around the time this all happened basically send out a big email to all my contacts at the different publishers and different houses and say hey here's what I want to do I want to create a recurring weekly program on Monday nights and Thursday nights So people have something to look forward to. They can get something on their schedule. People are going to be craving normality and craving some kind of recurring element because things were so crazy and hectic at that time. So I think since then, we've done about 40, 50 of those events. What do I wish I knew then when we started? It's been difficult to monetize them. We were making a big chunk of our revenue annually off of our author events. We've figured out ways to add that with other efforts, but and we have had some success with these in terms of monetizing them, but it's really tied to how big the person is. Like we did well with John Grisham. That's John Grisham. We did well with Colson Whitehead. That's like a huge name. You know, so we've had success with those John Waters, people like that. But people aren't taking a chance as much on a new writer or maybe a young novelist or something. So that's been tough. But attendance-wise, we've been really pleased with the amount of people 
they're coming to these things and watching them. Most of them were using Zoom, but we're also streaming them on Facebook, which kind of gives a whole new audience. Then we also put them on YouTube when we're done. So we almost have three or four avenues of viewership, which is nice. So they snowball a little bit. I'll find people watching something a few weeks after it happened. But I've really been proud of the kind of diverse slate of authors that we've had and the topics and the timely things. We have come, one coming up about Trump's rallies and that couldn't be more timely in Tulsa. So there's a guy who's written a new book called Liar's Circus, which, where he embedded himself in the MAGA rallies for maybe a year or two and really tries to look at that culture from the inside out. What could be more timely in Tulsa than a look at those rallies? That's going to be a little edgy, but it's also going to be something where we're talking about our actual community and what's happening. How many times have you had to tell people to mute themselves? Never, because we bought the webinar version of uh, Zoom, so we mute everybody from the big go. We, we control their video, we control their audio, but that is something that we learned early on that was needed for sure. So I, I have a friend who works for Philbrook, and one of my favorite stories she tells is about one of the, we'll call it guerrilla weddings. So the people will try to do their own events on the Philbrook, like they'll sneak in, try to do a quick little event before security catches them. Do you have any fun stories about Philbrook since so many of our podcasts have become pod for sad? What's something uh, fun and interesting from the before times you can tell us about? Probably the most joyful moment that I've ever had at the museum. If people are looking for joy in their life right now, and I think we all are, is in 2017, we have been showing movies on the lawn at Philbrook since 1972, so almost 50 50 summers we've been doing that early on it was like on a projector with a 16 millimeter print and it would break halfway through the movie so everybody'd go to the bathroom break while somebody spliced the film together (laughs) and then eventually it's now called of course well we decided in the early part of 2017 to kick off our season in May of 2017 with The Princess Bride. And we all love The Princess Bride. Everybody loves that. Mm-hmm. But we always try to make our movies more than just a movie. I want it to be a full experience. So we had the thought of, what if we had a wedding during the actual film? It was a real wedding, but we would give it away. Because weddings at the museum are, are not cheap. They're, they're accessible on a smaller level, but it does cost a bit. So we do a wedding, we would give it away for free, but they had to do it in character as Buttercup and Wesley from Princess Bride. So we had this idea, everybody thought it was fun. You have these big ideas and they never, they never turn out always like you seem. I would say I've done a thousand plus book events, for example, and I would say 10 of them maybe on the bigger side, 10 of them, every single thing worked out perfectly. That's just so rare. Because I have big dreams and my what I aspire to is really what reality lives up to be. But so we decided to do this in May. Is it going to be too hot? Is it going to rain? All these different things. We had to find the couple. So we did an outreach on social media. We said, if you'd like to get married at Fullbrook, let us know. We got tons and tons of responses. Well, we started getting a, a lot of people suggesting this one couple. So there was some consensus to where 10 or 12 people started suggesting the same couple. It was a couple that had been together for a long time and had been wanting to get married. It wasn't like a young couple that was really 
worried about it being like a special thing. Just they wanted to have some fun with it. So this couple, uh, their names were April and Will. They reached out to us and they said, hey, we love this idea. We love this movie. Would you let us take further and blow it up a little bit more? And we said, yeah, that sounds great. So they said, we want to have other people in the wedding as other characters. And it just grew and grew. And we reached out to a Renaissance fair company to turn the grounds into a Ren fair kind of vibe. And so all these components started building up. I got Fred Savage, who plays the kid in the movie, to do a video intro for them. So the night of the thing comes, and we have almost 1,500 people on the wall. Most of them have no idea what's going to happen that night. And they're going to watch a real wedding for strangers. They've never met these people. I think we gave 20 tickets to the families of the wedding party. We have sword fights happening. While the guy's walking up the aisle, like somebody tries to sword fight him, we have the woman, old woman, like with the warts on her face, who's yelling boo the whole time. All that's happening. When that happens, the weather is perfect. We have lights up throughout the gardens. There's all of a sudden fireflies happening. We have a guy dressed up as the priest who's doing the marriage and all that stuff. And you look around and it's, wow, at the moment, everything that we dreamed of is even better than it was all that. So at the very end, as a surprise to the couple, they did this. We have all these people watching. It's all this kind of perfect. I had them, I said, before you say I do or kiss the bride or whatever at the end, look to the screen. So they looked over to the screen and Fred Savage comes on the screen. And he says, April and Will, blah, blah, blah. Congratulations on your wedding, all this stuff. Now you can do the kissing part, right? <laughs> so then they kiss. And in that moment, when they kissed, unprompted, all 1,500 people on that green jumped to their feet and applauded. It was such a palpable feeling of joy. It almost created a wave across the whole crowd. People were crying, and it got super emotional because it was just such a pure, unfiltered moment. And then you start to think, this is why we exist as a museum and as a community organization to create joy and community and moments that you'll never forget. Anybody who was in that audience will never forget that moment. Of course, the wedding couple, certainly, but that to me is in my kind of top five moments uh, in my professional life. Not only did I get goosebumps just now, but I also got this intense happiness that was followed by a quick sadness that we aren't able to experience those things right now because we're not allowed to, in large groups. That's amazing. The Princess Bride is really having a renaissance right now, too. Yeah, it's timeless. It's great. It really is. Mm -hmm. Other than the fact that you can't think about how they fell in love as a couple in five minutes and then didn't recognize each other. He did have that little piece of fabric across his eyes. Well, as Superman toss all, all you need is glasses to hide your face and identity. So now that Mm -hmm. we're all wearing masks, it shouldn't be a problem. If only. Hey, he said that masks uh, masks are very comfortable. He thinks everyone will be wearing them in the future. And it's prophetic. Well, not everyone, but uh, that's a different issue. Pirates, yeah. So yeah, we should all be more like pirates. So talking about stories, you do a lot of interviews about Magic City books, and just in general, you talk about what you enjoy reading and finding out what other people are reading. Have you seen the stuff you're reading change during the pandemic? Like not you're reading for work, but mm-hmm. like I've noticed, I've started rereading long series that I remember the general story over time, but I've lost some of the detail but I want to be re-engaged with that world. 
I know I already enjoy it, even if it's sad. Has your reading changed? I usually read a much more of a mix of fiction and nonfiction, but I would say in the last few months, I've really leaned into reading more history than usual because I'm just looking for shitty things that have happened that we've gotten through. <laughs> I need that. I need that. It's so funny. The last event that we did with author in person, you were there and it was for Eric Larson. And he wrote a book called The Splendid and the Vile. And it was about Churchill and the Blitz and the Nazis and, and, and Britain. And it was interesting timing. I actually got a call from the publicist for that who was here with him. So for those who don't know, our, we had this huge event scheduled with Eric Larson, who's probably most famous for writing The Devil in the White City and a lot of other bestsellers. And we were going to do it at the B'nai Muna Synagogue, which we have done a ton of events at in the past. It sold hundreds and hundreds of tickets for it. And then everything just screeched to a halt. He was already in route and we decided to do it remotely. So we set up a what was, I guess, our first virtual event. We set up a, a remote telecast for this event. But she says, she's, I'll never forget that moment, that day was the day everything changed. Because I think back on it now, I don't know if it was, but that was the day, like maybe the NBA stopped that day. And it might've been the day that Tom Hanks announced. He, uh, it was a really weird day where everything came to it. But that book has been a really big seller right now. And I think not just because his books are always bestsellers, but it describes a time not similar to this in terms of medical, but in a time that seemed really hopeless and that we wouldn't be able to get through it. And people are reading those things uh, a lot right now. And I'm just basic enough to be one of them. So, In, in case anyone's curious, you can listen to that, that conversation on the one episode of the Magic City Book Pod that exists at the moment. Yeah. So we have 185 downloads. So there you go. He was in conversation with our mayor, which was interesting as well. So. Mostly history is what I've been reading. It, it is crazy how similar it is where you have a large group of people who are trying to do what they think is best to stop it. And then another group of people that just don't care. And it undoes a lot of the good that the people who are trying to stop it are doing. The one thing that I feel good about, and I don't know if I feel good, but it's interesting. The way that you just described that. Chris, where you said we have a group of people trying to do the right thing. And then a group either ignoring it or in some ways, purposely running counter to it. Name an issue in American progress that has not been that way. I wonder if it's unfortunately baked into the character of the country, this kind of ignorant contrarianism. I think it's that two steps up, three steps back. It's just that I, I don't know, and I, I don't mean, I don't understand if it's um, so ingrained in kind of this democratic experiment that we're doing that we could ever get past it. I think we look to certain examples and I think they're anomalies. And I don't, I think we say, okay, during World War II, we all rationed. I bet if we did some research on that, there were people who were anti-rationing and there were people who were, you know, so it's, I don't know. I I, I just, I worry that it's, we're thinking of it too uniquely right now. And I think they're just always idiots and assholes. I don't know if, how do you, how do you get around that? We've been talking about the original seatbelt laws and how people fought that. And every time the government has mandated something for people's safety, there's always a group of people who are, no, I get to decide how stupid I am. Mm-hmm. An, an example I can actually remember in our lifetime is, is helmets. That one, 
that's one uh motorcycle helmets was one yeah. that there were huge fights with uh motorcyclists talking about how it was ruining everything that they were going to have to wear helmets now if they were riding on highways so so i, I find some comfort in the fact that any issue I think we magnet we magnify it um, because of the scale of this and because of the life or death issue, which is unfortunate. But I think you can look from the granular level to these bigger things, and there's just always that push and pull, which is frustrating as hell. But hopefully, this kind of I'm filling with cliches, but there's that what's that the arc of history is long but it bends toward justice you have to think that also is not just about justice but common sense i hope that also i do believe i'm a short-term pessimist and a long-term optimist and i think that common sense does eventually become common but to get for something to become common it has to be uncommon first yeah Um, i'm a big proponent of generational change i do feel good about that yeah by the time this airs the college football season may be canceled so you do wonder like what is going to be the breaking point? What's going to be the thing that finally turns the tide for enough people that it become it it makes a difference and people take a step back and say, okay, we need to do something. The government needs to do something. Organizations need to do something, and we all have to do it in the same direction. Yeah, I think that unfortunately, I think it's probably going to burn itself out. And then people will claim victory on whatever side of the issue they're on. It will cycle its way through. Unfortunately, it will be worse and longer than it needed to have been. The one good thing, Jesse, you were talking about reading up on pandemics is the nature of a pandemic is not eternal, right? Most pandemics have a a life cycle to them. The question is, how long does that life cycle have to be? We'll see. Is that a good place to end on? I'm just kidding. Another pod for sad. Listen. We are jokesters at the gates of hell, as it were. So you gave us one of your favorite stories about Philbrook. What about uh, Magic City, either or one of your favorite author events that you've done or just a, a favorite story about Magic City? Let's pep it up again. Probably a good analogous moment to what I said earlier about Princess Bride was when I did an event with Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote Fight Club and many other novels. So I've been wanting to do an event with him for a long time and uh, didn't happen. And finally, I got the opportunity to do it. I wanted to make it pretty special. So I reached out to the Central Library, which had just closed because they were about to start a major renovation. So I reached out to them and said, could we do this event in the library during your construction or demolition? So it's really a raw kind of fight clubby looking space. And so they had to ask their board or whoever. and run it up the flagpole and they did and they said we could so i was like okay that'll be great then i kept started adding the things on that i said can i asked them i said are you going to tear all the drywall out they said yes i said we come in and just graffiti all the inside of the library (laughs) well we had to ask the board and run it up the flagpole came back said that's fine we can do that okay great so i hired some artists to go in and just graffiti the hell out of the library then I got a call one day from Chuck Palahniuk, who I had never met. And so we talked and he asked me for my home address. And he said, I want to send you a few things. So I gave it to him. Maybe a week or two later, I pull up from work into my driveway. And my whole porch is covered in boxes that are like stacked from the floor to the top of my porch. And I have no idea what they are. So I go up there and I use my key on my you know, keep playing to cut open the box and 
It's full of deflated beach balls. <laughs> and then I cut another one open and it's full of glow sticks. Like I'm putting a rave on or something. <laughs> and I finally find a note that says these are from him and they're for the event. This is, I don't know, 30 boxes, huge boxes. So then you start getting a vibe for what this is going to feel like. Then we decided to make the event 18 and over only and make it a, what we'll call an adult pajama party. So we have all these components happening. And then I hire food trucks and I think we had live music I hired that night and all this different stuff. So I'm driving there that night. And as I'm going in there, the weirdest moment I've ever had in downtown Tulsa is I'm driving down Denver. And I see all these probably people say 18 to 35 wearing lingerie and pajamas, carrying pillows and stuff, walking toward the library, <laughs> like hundreds and hundreds of people. And because we had over a thousand people at this thing. So we do the event and it's wild. At the end of the night, everyone who came got one of those beach balls and got one of those glow sticks. These beach balls were made to where you could put the glow stick inside the beach ball. And so everybody blew up their beach ball and then cracked their glow stick, put it in the thing. And then we turned off every light in the library. And if you go on YouTube and look up Chuck Palna Tulsa, you should be able to see the video of this. It looks like you're at a Flaming Lips concert. <laughs> and um, it totally has the vibe of something. You would never look at it and go, this is a book signing. <laughs> It's on YouTube somewhere. Anyway, um, at the end of the night, everyone who came also got a Sharpie. And he told people at the end of the night, take your Sharpie and sit down on the floor and write down your darkest, deepest thought or secret that you've ever had. The most vile, horrible thing you've ever thought of. Just purge purge it from your system. I didn't know that the one part of the library they weren't demolitioning was the floor. And the whole of the library was just, and walls and everything were just covered with the most obscene, horrible things you can imagine. So that was an awkward phone call the next day with the brass of the library. You found the video? I have found the video. It looks amazing. And I also think you and Chris should plan a party together because it sounds like you have the same condition, which is to take whatever the party idea was and then shoot it up to 11. You gotta make it even bigger. <laughs> I think that's right, because the way I always viewed it was, I wanted, my, I wanted our things, our book things, to compete on an entertainment level with anything that you would go to. Because I think there was always the, how do you engage younger people and other people? It, it had to feel like it had that energy. Not be like book signing or some literary, I hate the term literary in terms of the events. I just wanted it to be fun and interesting. And um, that's on that list of things where the sum of the parts was much greater uh, at the end of the day because of all the different components that came into play. But that was a really special and fun night. This video is crazy looking. I'll, <laughs> it will be included in the show notes of the episode. But I guess that's one of those things where, and a lot of people we have on the podcast talk about this, but how unique Tulsa is where it's a big city, but small enough where everyone is just one person away from knowing the person they need to know. And I feel like in other big cities, you would not be able to get the main central library to allow you to do that. But here, there are already relationships built. 
and the sense that something could be done here. Like I, I don't see that happening in the Boston Central Library, <laughs> which was under construction while I was there. They did not let anyone in there during that time. But it's a gorgeous venue, and they could have done some really cool things. I mean, the closest thing I think I have to a superpower is talking people into doing crazy shit. <laughs> you and Chris both. And it seems sometimes those type of events end up taking on a life of their own. Because once you get a couple of yeses on some things, and then it gets you thinking, well, why not ask for this one more thing? Just to see if you can go one step more before you run into that. Because if they're already four steps down the road, what's a fifth step? I think my memoir, if I ever write one, will be called, Hey, what about... So have you already begun planning your first post-coronavirus event? And how insanely massive is it going to be? Are you waiting? Are you waiting because you don't want to even be patient with yourself? When will this run? Because I'll tell you something that's timely. But when will this run? Oh, let's see. Probably August 27th, probably. Okay. So we had been planning to do... I've been planning all summer to try to have one kind of comeback event in the fall. I wanted to do something really big. So I planned an event with Margaret Atwood and it was going to be in person on September 8th, but we're not ready for that. So it's going to be a virtual event and it would have been a really special moment, not to mention who she is and what she writes about and the place we're in the world right now. It'll still be a cool event. I'm excited to interview her, but it would have been a really special, I think, to come together for. I think to answer your question, we're probably not going to be doing, I don't expect to do any in-person events until 2021 at this time. So I'm looking at spring to look at some kind of comeback event, hopefully. There were a couple of events this year that really bummed me out that we weren't able to pull off in person. Like Colson Whitehead would have been a really special moment for Tulsa at the time during what was happening here, John Waters was planned as an in-person event. That would have been just a super fun night. And of course, Margaret Atwood would have been, I think, one of our kind of signature events that we've ever had. It'll still be cool. That's not much to complain about when people are you know dying every day, but it was a bummer still nonetheless. So that's what you've been teasing on social media, right? It was a September 8th thing? We're going to announce it this week, so it'll be before your thing. Yeah. That's good, because you don't want to try to break news on here, because Chris and I cannot keep secrets. Kind of a point that I feel like, Jesse, you and I talked a little bit about early on, but we haven't really talked about it as much since, and that's you almost feel guilty about feeling bad about small things, because there's so much horrible things going on, but it's how do you give yourself permission to feel bad about small things? I think in some ways, my whole life is built around distractions, trying to give people things to distract them from the horrible things in the world. And that's true now and any other time. But it's easy to think frivolously about what we do in terms of, hey, at the end of the day, it's just showing art or it's just a book event or whatever. But I've learned, especially over these last few months from all the interactions I've had with people and how amazingly supportive people have been in my different various pursuits that it is important to people. And in some ways we'll probably never take it for granted again. So many events that we enjoy have obviously been canceled. And I know there are some events later this year that are still 
trying to hold on if things go well. I know that Phil Brook is still looking to have mix this year if they can find a way to do it safely. So there's a lot of events that are still possible. It does start to feel like a part of you feels, should we just shut down 2020 and just start over next year and just try again? Yeah, my wife owns a bakery, so the restaurant industry has been really hard. I found myself in the Venn diagram of really crazy organizations and industries to be involved with. But I think the other thing is, if we can manage this and survive it and get through it, I hope we'll feel we can pretty much survive anything at that point. So that's where that long-term optimism comes into play. And I feel if we can make it through this current moment, I think we'll be fortified in a way that we weren't previously. So earlier you talked about wanting to have things for people to look forward to. You mentioned Margaret Atwood. What are some other events or anything that you'd like to plug coming up that people can look forward to? I have a couple of things soon, but I don't want to talk about stuff that will have already happened. Um, so yeah, September, you know, I'm excited about, certainly about that Margaret Atwood event. But we also have a couple of really interesting local author events. But September is pretty great. We're still planning a lot of things right now. We have Margaret Atwood. We also have some really amazing fiction writers. There's a woman named Amy Bender, who's one of the great kind of almost like a surrealist uh, writing fiction. What I'm really excited about, though, is a book that was picked as one of the 10 best books of the year last year by the New York Times. And it's a book about uh, domestic violence. And so we're partnering with DVIS. Her name's Rachel Louise Snyder. It's a book called No Visible Bruises. And so that's the kind of point is we're trying to partner with local organizations and have really important conversations. People may not know this, but during the pandemic, there have been a lot of increases in domestic violence calls. And, and so that's an important issue. So that's where we try to find that space where we can contribute something broader. But then again, at the end of the month, we're going to be doing uh, an event with this woman who her name is Caitlin Doty, and she writes about she's a, a mortician, but she writes these really funny nonfiction books about death. Uh, so she has this book <laughs> called "Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs?" and it's, "What Happens to You When You Die?" So we're gonna we're trying to find the balance between serious events and doing that, but we'll also be doing a couple political things. We have a our event we're doing about. Trump rallies, which will be in September. That's going to be, I believe, on the 17th of September. And then a week or so later, we're going to be doing an event with these two authors who have written a book about moderation. Where's the moderate and the political spectrum? So they've written this book called Union. And the subtitle is Democrat, Republican, and Search for Common Ground. So it's like the disappearing middle ground in politics. So that's really getting close to the presidential election. So we'll be doing more political stuff. So yeah, September, October, we're going to try to keep it varied and fun and try to make it like a mixtape of experiences. Excellent. Those all sound amazing. I don't think I'll listen to the mortician one, but... Uh, really, that was the one that excited yeah. me. I was like, I need... I, I love a good, funny death story, so... I, but... I have enough existential dread just in my <laughs> life. Listen, I have two cats and a dog. I'm always wondering what's going to happen to me if I die. And you might want to skip the, you might want to skip the Margaret Atwood one, too, then. So when you're not reading books for pleasure or reading books for Magic City Books, what do you do to relax, to just have fun? What is your sort of pop culture comfort food during the pandemic? Probably nothing super original. Tons of Netflix. I've been rewatching a lot of old films. I actually just watched something that you want to talk about a good time killer is Warren Beatty's film from 1980 called Reds, which is basically about the Russian Revolution. And I'd always heard about this film. And I think I always skipped it because I was worried about how long it was. And it sounded like a slog, but 
what was really fascinating about it to me was I love NPR and I love narrative and I love, I'll watch anything that's like American experience, PBS, anything like that. He did something that was fascinating in that movie, which was there are real interviews with people who were part of the scene at that time. So this is everybody from famous writers like Henry Miller and other people. And he does real interviews, but it's interspersed with the actual movie movie. So it's been good over three hours, but we watched it like a show. We watched like an hour a night over three hours. So, and there's some nice break points where it kind of feels like you can take a little moment. Warren Beatty probably would not be happy. I watched it that way, but (laughs) I'm not going to listen to this. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. I was actually going to send it to him, but now I guess I won't. The other thing I would tell people to watch that I loved is a show called I Am Not Okay With This. It's a Netflix show that I just stumbled upon. And it's like these little, like the episodes are like 20 minutes a piece. They're really short. So I think I watched it all in a day or two. It was just refreshingly original and interesting and fun. And it's a period 80s vibe, but it's not really set in the 80s, but it has this ambiguous time to it that's really interesting and There's people using like landline phones. It's really strange, but I like that when people kind of play with how you perceive time and stuff. So that was really great. And then, you know, just tons of old movies. And I listen to tons of podcasts. I'm listening to 10 different podcasts a week, probably. And and I'm a culture vulture by heart. So this period has been not too different for me because I'm always uh, soaking up stuff like that. But I am running out. So please send, send recommendations. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been honestly one of our happier conversations we've had recently. So this was good. And we'll make sure to list all the amazing events that are happening at Magic State Books and Philbrook. Thank you so much for the invite. So please give the Philbrook cats some pets from us. We miss them. Hopefully they're doing all right. It's been an honor to be asked. had a good time. All right. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you all enjoyed our conversation with Jeff Martin about all the amazing things he's doing in town. Uh, Please check out our show notes for a large calendar list of events that Magic City Books is doing. And please sign up to do their private shopping thing, help them stay in business. And most importantly, for me and Chris, please subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And hopefully there'll be a time in the future when I don't have to say this. But listeners, Telsons, Oklahomans, Get done out there and wear a mask. Mm-hmm.